here in Taos we have what is considered to be a sacred mountain. It's one amongst many mountains that surround this Taos Valley. This sacred mountain is actually within the Pueblo, the village of the Tiwa Indians on the north edge of town. This particular mountain is sacred to the Tiwa people. And it's also in some way a sacred symbol for many Taosenos. I have the good fortune to be able to look out at it and take it in in every season, every time, any time of the day or night, as it's very clearly visible from where I live. This mountain, any mountain, just simply sits where it is. The sun shines on it, rain and hail fall on it, snow covers it, lightning strikes it, fire sometimes rage on it. All sorts of life forms are born and die on it, living out their particular life patterns on and with the mountain. The mountain remains unshakable, unwavering the mountain of a kind of radical acceptance, the mountain of equanimity. The mountain itself is a live energy, a lively energy, but only exists in relationship to all of the myriad, lively, constantly changing energies that constitute it. The mountain appropriately sustains and supports the activity that is intricately and intimately connected to it. The mountain of equanimity doesn't cling on. It isn't attached or averse to anything. We might say it lets life live through it, lets life live live through itself closing off to nothing, holding on to nothing. And all of this happens with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance. This evening we'll explore equanimity, upekka in Pali. Equanimity is a powerful force in our practice, a powerful force in the whole of our life. In the Buddhist teachings, it's included as one of the ten paramis, the ten perfections, one of the four brahma-viharas, one of the divine abidings, which is their metta, karuna, mudita, and equanimity and one of the seven enlightenment factors. It's also one of the two jhana factors in the fourth jhana. Upeka was the final factor to come into maturity as the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree that now famous night. 
with an evenness and balance in his relaxed and powerful presence, as though he were an immovable mountain. As he sat there with amazing grace, seeing things clearly and relinquishing, letting go in his heart, mind, relinquishing every attachment to all formations of body and mind and breaking through to the great liberation, the great awakening, breaking through to the complete ending of suffering. Equanimity is the fearlessness, the power and the equilibrium of the heart, the mind to experience all kinds of change. The fearlessness, the power, and the balance of heart and mind to experience every sort of manifestation and change in the realms of internal and external experience and in the realm of feeling, the pleasant or unpleasant feeling associated with the arising, changing, and passing of internal and external phenomena. The Buddha described what he called six-limbed equanimity, the equanimity of one whose afflictive states, or cankers, as the Buddha sometimes called them, have been destroyed, destroyed temporarily or completely and finally, and who one who abides then in the natural state of a purity in relationship to desirable or undesirable objects that come into focus at any of the six sense doors. And these are some words from the Buddha. Here uh, a bhikkhu, a yogi, whose cankers are destroyed, is neither overjoyed nor distraught on seeing a visible, visible object with the eye, hearing an audible sound with the ear, and he goes through all of the sense doors, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. She or he dwells in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. Equanimity is the fearlessness, great strength and ease of heart, mind, to remain centered, to remain unmoved, in the midst of it all. The literal translation of upekka is on-looking. Equanimity looks on at the occurrence of physical and mental pleasure and pain by maintaining a neutral mode, by staying in the center, staying in the middle, watching things as they arise. On looking, it sees them fairly, without favoritism or bias, without partiality. So one attribute of equanimity itself, as it's described in the realm of feeling, is as neither pleasant nor painful feeling. 
the function of equanimity is to inhibit partiality. And so equanimity manifests as neutrality. We could say that equanimity is the equipoise, the balance or equilibrium between the opposing forces in the mind of the desired and the undesired. This equipoise of equanimity offsets the weightiness of greed and aversion. It's that point of balance in the middle of the seesaw of life. The heart, the mind doesn't move towards, nor does it move away. I remember as a child that I loved to find that point of balance when I was playing on the seesaw or the teeter-totter with another child. There was always a certain kind of happy and almost breathtaking feeling inside me in the moments when we found that point of balance in the middle. And this is a poem from T.S. Eliot who says, says this beautifully in his particular way. At the still point of the turning world, <clears throat> neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is. But neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. This still point of equanimity is a place of protection, while at the same time being a great spaciousness and strength of heart, mind. The Buddha uses the metaphor of putting a, a spoonful of salt in a cup of water. Because of the small container, the water will be extremely salty, harsh, undrinkable. On the other hand, if we put uh, a spoonful of salt into a large body of water the size of the Rio Grande River, the largest river here in New Mexico, it won't have the same effect because of the enormous amount of water, because of the great spaciousness that the salt is put into. And life is quite salty at times. It's just how it is. One aspect of the development of equanimity is about creating the spaciousness of heart with which we can meet and look on at all of life's experiences. Look on with a balance, with equipoise, with the heart of greatness. 
with what is called in the suttas in relationship to equanimity as a factor of enlightenment, look on with a specific neutrality. So what does this mean, specific neutrality? It means that whatever states of consciousness are present, including at times the uh, three other immeasurables, Brahma-viharas, metta, karuna, mudita, the other uh, six enlightenment factors, which are mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, and concentration, as well as the arising of various other states of consciousness, such as patience, faith, that they're all met and seen, looked on at evenly through the heart and mind of equanimity. So again, the function of equanimity is to inhibit partiality. And so upekka manifests as neutrality. There's a wonderful little book of teachings from Zen Master Dogen with commentary by Uchiyama Roshi called How to Cook Your Life, where Dogen uses the work of the monastery cook, the Tenzo, and our relationship to food to teach us, in this case, about equanimity. And of course, we can bring this teaching immediately close, right here and now in relationship to our cook, our amazing Surya Tenzo, and into our life also when we're back home. And Dogen says this, handle even a single leaf of a green in such a way that it manifests as the body of the Buddha. This in turn allows the Buddha to manifest through the leaf. This is a power you cannot grasp with your rational mind. It operates freely according to the situation in a most natural way. At the same time, this power functions in our lives to clarify and settle activities and is beneficial to all living beings. And he goes on to say, a dish is not necessarily superior because you've prepared it with choice ingredients, nor is a soup inferior because you've made it with ordinary greens. When handling and selecting greens, do so wholeheartedly, with a pure mind, and without trying to evaluate their quality, in the same way in which you would prepare a splendid feast. In practicing, this is continuing with Dogen, in practicing the Dharma, delicious and ordinary tastes are the same and not two. There's an old saying, the mouth of a monk, a yogi, is like an oven. Just as an oven burns both sandalwood for incense and cow dung for cooking without distinction, our mouths should be the same. There should be no distinction between delicious food and food which is plain and simple. We should be satisfied with whatever we receive. So how does one look on at the mind with equanimity? 
What contributes to this looking on in this way? What contributes to this capacity of relating to all things with equanimity? So for example, when we practice here in retreat and in our life outside of a retreat setting, when at times the heart, the mind is tranquil, serene, and this is known, when we recognize that the focusing power of the mind, concentration, is evenly and repeatedly connecting with whatever the object of attention is, when the mind isn't listless, and when it isn't agitated, but it's interested and appropriately energized. At those times, we don't feel any necessity. We, we aren't interested in exerting, restraining, or encouraging the mind in any way at all. Just simply recognizing and knowing that this is what's occurring, that these factors of mind are in place for a brief or maybe for a longer period of time, is actually something that contributes to the blossoming of our capacity to relate to all things with equanimity. In the time and the culture of the Buddha, his metaphor for the mind when it's in this mode was this. One is like a charioteer who looks with equanimity on horses progressing evenly. And much more likely in our case, the metaphor might be one who is like the driver of a car who looks on with equanimity in a car that's running along evenly when it's set on cruise control. We're able to see what's in front of us and what's passing by with ease. This quality, this factor of mind, allows the process of practice, the progress of insight, to unfold without getting caught, without getting mired in the habits of mind that stop things up. The various habits of clinging, attachment, and identification that can create a block, a tangle, in the flow of the process. Within the ambiance of equanimity, even the subtleties of the habits of identification and the comparing mind can be seen, known, and not clung to, allowing understanding then to blossom, deepen, and eventually mature. And as we all know, until equanimity is really truly matured, we lose and regain our balance over and over again. Quite a number of years ago, for the last two weeks of a long retreat that I was sitting, I practiced equanimity. And I practiced it in the way that it's practiced as a Brahma Vihara, one of the divine abidings. 
by silently repeating one equanimity phrase over and over and over again, directing it first to myself and then on through all of the same categories that are used for metta practice. I am the heir or the owner of my karma, my deeds of thought, mind, speech, and body. My happiness or suffering depends upon my actions, not upon my wishes for myself. By the end of those two weeks, there was quite a deep and quiet sense of balance, evenness, and neutrality in the heart and mind. A day or two before the end of the retreat, the thought came up, ah, there's equanimity here. Seems to be a fairly deep and abiding equanimity. And then the next thought was, I wonder if there's an equanimity test. If this was a Zen session, a good Zen teacher would do something creatively startling to check my equanimity. But this is a Vipassana retreat, and Vipassana teachers don't do things like that. And then the thought just disappeared. Well, later that day, I was startled in true Vipassana fashion an equanimity test, Vipassana style. I, there was a note on the board for me signed by one of my equanimity teachers, though actually the note was from all uh, five of the teachers who were teaching that retreat. And the note said, we would like you to give the Dana talk to the yogis tomorrow. Well, for a moment, equanimity flew right out the window. It felt like my heart stopped, actually. The old habit of fear flew in. And the thought, I can't, I can't do this, said my old habit. (laughs) I've been silent for so many weeks and deeply into practice. I can't get up in front of my fellow yogis and talk. It's impossible. And then the heart and mind relaxed, saw what had just occurred, and the thought came in when, ah, yes, this is my equanimity test, of course, (laughs) and I can do it. I want to do it. And at that moment, a tremendous flood of gratitude came into the heart. Gratitude for the teachers, for the retreat center staff, for the teachings, for the practice. And just as suddenly as it had gone, equanimity was back. What I was being asked to do felt like it was the most natural thing in the world. We lose and regain our balance over and over and over again. Upeka manifests as quieting fear, dislike, resentment, and self-judgment that can uh, often manifest as guilt, disapproval, 
not being good enough. It also manifests as quieting liking, pride, attachment, and the judgment of approval in relationship to what we think of as ourself, me, and my experiences. Equanimity also manifests in quieting the attachment and fear that comes up in relationship to others. When equanimity has arisen and is developing, in those moments, fear and resentment, attachment, identification, and the judgments of approval or disapproval subside. Within the clear space of a true neutrality, there's nothing for greed and aversion to stick to when they arise. Equanimity fails when it produces what is called the equanimity of unknowing, which the Buddha called worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance. So what does this mean, worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance? It occurs when we don't clearly see or see through the object of our attention with a focused attention of a concentrated mindfulness and investigation. And instead, we're blindly seduced by, swept away in the happenings of life, seemingly equanimous with it all. This isn't upekka. It's what the Buddha called indifference based in ignorance. And this is from the Buddha. On seeing a visible object with the eye, or in relation to contact through any of the six sense doors, equanimity arises in the foolish, infatuated, ordinary man or woman, in the untaught, ordinary woman or man, who hasn't seen or conquered his or her limitations, who hasn't understood or conquered future results, karma, who is unperceiving of danger in relationship to attachment or aversion. Such equanimity doesn't see through the visible object. Such so-called equanimity is actually indifference based in ignorance. The Buddha was most often very direct, very straightforward, and very succinct in his teaching. So just a brief personal story in relationship to this. When I first began living here in Taos some years ago, a place uh, where so very many beautiful handcrafted things are displayed in the shop windows. And I would walk along and look and at times be very infatuated with what I was seeing, with what I want, and even sometimes with the delusion of what I need. The very painful contraction of 
what we could call the must-have mind. So I decided to uh, make it a practice. (laughs) And I practiced walking along the streets here in Taos, the shop, and looking in the shop windows and watching my mind, watching the leaning into of grasping, clinging, watching the pain, the suffering involved in that over and over again watching this process and then watching it subside as I got, became to see it much, much more clearly watching it subside and undo and then being able eventually to walk along and notice seeing what was there with great appreciation rather than the must-have, the painful must-have mind It took a while. (laughs) The Dalai Lama tells a story about himself um, being taken to an area, I think it was in London, um, by a friend, a well-meaning friend, to a place where there were uh, lots of shops that sell all kinds of tiny little mechanical parts, which happens to be a particular interest of the Dalai Lama's kind of an interest and fascination of his. And he said he had this very strong inner feeling of wanting them all. (laughs) And then realized that he didn't even know what most of them were for. And of course we know from our own experience that when we're inflamed with greed or fear or resentment, it isn't possible to look on at those moments with a true equanimity. And we probably each also know the pretense of equanimity within ourselves in the midst of greed, resentment, anger, fear, or disappointment. The glossing over, the ignorance, ignoring these these states, uh, pretending to ourselves, basically, the pretense of equanimity, the it doesn't really matter kind of attitude, or the oh, I'm okay attitude, accompanied by a slight or maybe not so slight moving away contraction, which is not equanimity. It's actually indifference the what is called the near enemy of equanimity indifference masquerading as upekka upekka is based on an attentive clear presence of mind not on dullness and indifference it's not a kind of casual passing mood and it's not produced by exertion It's the result, it's one of the fruits of our practice. The fruit of training the heart, the mind, through the development and blossoming of the factors of mindfulness, investigation, a balanced effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, loving-kindness, and compassion. A true equanimity is able to meet all of the vicissitudes of life. These flip-flops of the mind that we encounter in our mind. 
and maybe daily here in retreat. And that we encounter in our life outside of retreat and maybe coming to us from others in our life. The vicissitudes of praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame or distinction or disrepute, disrespect or disregard. True equanimity is able to meet all of these sometimes harsh feeling tests and is quickly able to regenerate its strength from one's inner resources, the resources that have been developed through diligent practice. There's an amazing practice that was and maybe uh, still is sometimes done by the Hopi Indians. I don't recommend this practice, but uh, we can take it as a metaphor for us in relationship to the cultivation and manifestation of the power of fearlessness, evenness of mind and heart, and the protection that is the great strength of equanimity. And this is from the Book of the Hopi by Frank Waters. There were all kinds of snakes, rattlesnakes, big bull snakes, racers, sidewinders, gopher snakes, about 60 all tangled on the floor. The singing stirred them. They moved in one direction, then another, looking over all the men in the circle. The men never moved. They just kept singing with a kind expression on their faces. The snakes began to roll in the sand, taking their bath. Then a big yellow rattler moved toward an old man singing with his eyes closed, climbed up on his crossed leg, coiled in front of his breechcloth, and went to sleep. Pretty soon this old man had five or six snakes crawling over his body, raising their head to look at the closed eyes and peaceful face then going to sleep. It showed that they had found their friend, looking within the heart of this one upon whose body they chose to rest. That is the way snakes show who are good and kind men with pure hearts. True equanimity will possess the power of protection and wholesome resistance in relationship to the mind, the heart, getting seduced by and caught, caught up in states of fear, greed, and aversion. It will possess the power of renewing itself only if it's deeply rooted in a growing insight into the nature of things. There are two particular insights, understandings, that I'd like to spend just a little bit of time exploring with you this evening. That as they develop and ripen into insight are the root of equanimity. The first of these is our growing clarity in understanding how the vicissitudes, the ups and downs of life originate, how they come to be. This is the understanding of 
karma or kama in Pali. The understanding that various experiences of stress, of suffering, and the experience of ease are the result of our karma, the result of our actions, our actions of thought, speech, and deed. Here and now, in this lifetime, and on back and back and back. This is karma. This is our karma. We could say we're born, we spring out of the womb of karma. And even though we might not like it at times, we are the heirs of our karma. So for instance, just as soon as we've spoken words or performed any action, we've totally lost control of it. And yet, it remains with us. And in some way, inevitably returns to us as what we could call our due inheritance. We could say that everything that happens and the ease or dis-ease in our heart, mind, is the outcome of our own mind's relationship to all of the happenings, internally and externally. Our suffering and our happiness in this life, in any given moment, is due to our own mind. our motivations and our actions of speech and body, not due to our wishes for ourselves, and not due to some other person or some outer antagonistic or seemingly strange or seemingly foreign world. As this understanding takes root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. And so is the first basis of equanimity. When, in fact, with everything that happens around us and within us, we begin to see that we only meet ourselves, what is there to fear? the heart begins to relax. We begin to know that we can change our mind. That we're not trapped on the karmic wheel running around and around like a gerbil. But of course, as we've all experienced, fear, uncertainty, insecurity arise along the way of our life. And at the same time, as we traverse this path, we clearly begin to see and to know that the refuge where fear can be dispelled is through our good deeds, here and now. Refuge from this perspective is in wholesome thought, wholesome motivations, wholesome words, and performing wholesome actions. As we take this refuge, 
there comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past and a growing courage to perform more wholesome deeds right now even in the midst of what might be some hardships in our current life. Our practice itself, this incredible training of the heart, a very good deed, really the best, and the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness through all aspects of our life. One of the things that's been really important for me in understanding karma is that it's always the right time to perform wholesome actions, to do good deeds. It's never too late. And so we practice this. It becomes established in us. It becomes a refuge. And at some point we know for sure as it was said by one of the Buddha's disciples, more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else can the future bring other than increase of the good? As this becomes more and more a certainty in our heart, the mind becomes more tranquil and serene. And we gain the great strength of a patient heart and the evenness and balance of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges, the various difficulties in our life. As the refuge of doing good deeds becomes our way, our deeds become our friend rather than our adversary. Even if sometimes the results of deeds bring us maybe sorrow or discomfort or pain, maybe via the way others treat us or through some upheaval or some turmoil in our life or in some surprising or maybe unrecognizable way or even sometimes the results that occur aren't what we expected, not what we had in mind results that are maybe contrary to what we might think our motivation was. Many years ago, I had a therapist who would sometimes say to me, or actually more accurately say for me at appropriate times, this isn't what I had in mind, which would always stop me in my tracks and move me to take a look a close look at my expectations and motivations. And most importantly in that moment, to simply be with what was occurring with an open heart and as clear a mind as was possible at that time. If we make suffering our teacher, then in a sense it becomes our friend maybe sometimes a kind of stern or in a certain way a demanding teacher, but potentially a truthful and very well-intended friend. 
because we learn about ourselves, which seems to be our most difficult subject. Along the way of our practice with the development and blossoming of relative equanimity, we find that we have the strength to endure when we need to endure and to see clearly when that's what's being called for. In befriending suffering by looking directly and clearly at it, we have the possibility of not continuing to blindly fall into the same holes over and over again, but begin to walk down a different street. The teachings of karma and the understanding therein can imbue us with a powerful motivation to free ourselves from karma, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again throw us into repeated suffering, to free ourselves from repeatedly being born, repeatedly being reborn into the realm of suffering. As we more and more clearly see our own craving and delusion and our habitual tendency to create and entangle, engage in situations that strain, that sap our strength and our healthy resistance, a wholesome disgust, as the Buddha called it, arises. And our motivation to practice in order to free ourselves from craving and delusion is strengthened. So the first insight that is the basis of equanimity is the understanding of karma. The second insight that equanimity is based on is the teaching and the understanding of anatta not self or no self. From this perspective, there's no one, no self, performing any deeds, nor do the results affect any self. The fact is, the truth is, that it's the delusion of a separate, solid self, a separate me, that creates suffering and disturbs equanimity. If we claim ownership, this is mine, this is me, this is who I am, the vicissitudes of life will always throw us into the realm of suffering. So for instance, if this or that aspect of our personality some particular quality of ours is criticized or blamed. One thinks, I am blamed. And equanimity is shaken. We receive approval or praise for something that we've done. And we think, I've been praised, I'm a success. And equanimity is disturbed. If this or that work that we've done doesn't succeed or isn't praised in the way we want it to be, one thinks, my work has failed or I've failed. 
and equanimity is again shaken. If wealth or a loved one is lost, one thinks what's mine is gone. And equanimity is shaken again. The unwavering mountain of equanimity is always shaken in the delusion of identification of me, mine, I am. As our heart opens and our understanding deepens, there's an easing of the constrictive feelings and thoughts based in self-centeredness. Unshakable equanimity of heart, mind, is established by giving up, relinquishing all possessive thoughts, the thoughts of mine, which itself may be quite a daunting thought. (laughs) So we begin with the small things from which it's easy to detach oneself and gradually working up to possessions, goals, and identifications that we so very tenaciously cling to. The first time that I taught at the Forest Refuge, which is connected with the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, was for two months, and I was the first visiting teacher there. I was there long enough to really settle in, And yet again and again, there was the awareness that the house that I was uh, living in wasn't mine. And it came about in small, simple, and sometimes surprising ways. When I first got there, there was no telephone in the house. It was difficult. So, for instance, when I wanted to uh, check or send email, I had to carry my laptop over to the tiny little telephone room in the administration building. So I lobbied for a phone, (laughs) which in moments felt like it was for me. There was quite a degree of tension and stress in this. But in truth, the phone was for the many, many others who would be using that house over many, many years. At one point I was told um, that it was okayed, that a phone was going to be put in the house. But when that was going to happen was unknown. (laughs) At that point there was a quick letting go, and no more thoughts about it occurred. I relaxed. And I truly felt that it just didn't matter if the phone arrived while I was staying in the house or not. Because it wasn't for me. It wasn't mine. At another point during that same two months, it was decided to purchase a rug for the living room of the house. Jeannie, the housekeeper, brought the rug catalog over for us to decide which rug to order. It clearly wasn't a rug for me. wasn't for my house. We were choosing for anyone, everyone, anyone at all. And I noticed there was such a difference in the experience in the heart with this. Not that subtle contraction of something being mine, being for me. There was an openness and a spaciousness. No contraction, no clinging in the choosing 
which made it much more fun. So the small things at first that we think are ours or should be ours and working up to giving, giving up, letting go, relinquishing such thoughts of self as beginning to relinquish the identification with some of the qualities that we're identified with as who we think we are, our personality. It's the thought of these things being who I am that we relinquish. And this is an important point. It's the thought of these things being who I am that we relinquish. The clinging thought of these being who I am that we give up, that we let go of. And beginning with small aspects of our personality, qualities of seeming minor importance, and very slowly through our practice, working up to letting go of identification, practicing detachment in relationship to those emotions and aversions that we may regard as the center of our being. Ajahn Sumedho, the abbot of Amaravati Monastery in England, shares a wonderful way of practicing with this. When a particular habitual tendency of his shows up, and in this case he's talking about the critical mind, he says, oh, there's my personality. (laughs) Can our personality be impersonal? Can we relinquish our identity with this or that being who I am, being me? Even including the positive emotional states and the aversions and the special gifts that we might regard, that we might be identified with as the center of our being. As we let go of, as we relinquish thoughts of mine, me, or self, equanimity will enter our hearts. How could anything we realize, truly realize, is not me, not mine, not who I am, cause us agitation due to greed or lust or hatred or fear or grief. This morning's reflection was, if you probably remember, a particular teaching that the Buddha offered to his son Rahula on the four great elements. And this is a wonderful teaching on not-self and on equanimity. Essentially, this is our practice. To whatever degree we abandon, we relinquish thoughts of mine, of me, of I am. To whatever degree we forsake thoughts of self, that's the degree that equanimity will enter our heart. When we realize, when we truly come to know anything as void of a self, in those moments, how could it cause us any agitation due to lust or hatred or grief or fear? 
Thus the teaching and the practice of anatta is our guide along the path to liberation, our guide along the path to perfect equanimity. Equanimity is the perfectly unshakable balance of heart, of mind, and it's rooted in insight. The first understanding insight being that of karma and the second of anatta. The heart, the mind of specific neutrality isn't cold. It's not heartless or dull. It doesn't manifest out of an emotional emptiness but out of a fullness or a completeness of connection and understanding. At some point along the way of our practice, equanimity will evolve from being relative equanimity to absolute equanimity and will develop into an equanimity that is a manifestation of the highest strength and insight. In the progress of insight, when equanimity is strong, fulfilled, mature, concentration, samadhi, and understanding, wisdom, occur coupled together without one exceeding the other. At that point, there is insight knowledge into the danger of afflictive emotions, the defilements as they're called, and insight knowledge into the advantage of purification. Insight, understanding at that point, produces what the Buddha called a satisfiedness, a purifiedness, and a clarifiedness, which is all manifesting due to onlooking equanimity, which at this point is called absolute equanimity or holy equanimity. And in the Buddha's words, just as all the streams of the world enter the great ocean and all the waters of the sky rain into it, but not an increase or decrease of the great ocean is seen, such is the nature of holy equanimity. I'd like to share a beautiful description that I found uh, of the liberated heart, the liberated mind, the heart of six-limbed equanimity. And this is it. The mind and heart of an awakened one is likened to a clear, well-cut crystal. And because it's clear, without stains, it absorbs all the rays of light and sends them out again intensified by the power and purity of its concentrated energy. The crystal can't be tainted by the colors of the rays. Its hardness can't be pierced. Its perfectly harmonious structure can't be disturbed. In its purity and strength, the crystal remains unchanged. The upekka of an awakened one is unshakable because it's absolute. It's absolute 
simply because it clings to nothing. And so we practice here in retreat and at home in the midst of our daily lives. We practice with sincerity and and diligence. We sit with a growing understanding and blossoming of insight. As awakening beings, we practice with aspiration and determination. It's inevitable. It's inevitable for us that each of the whole wholesome factors of heart and mind and the liberating insights will, will sprout, will blossom, and eventually will mature in us. It's our karma, we could say. I'd like to close the talk this evening with two short pieces from the Udana, the inspired utterances of the Buddha. In the first piece, whose mind stands like a mountain, steady, is not perturbed, unattached to things that arouse attachment, unangered by things that provoke anger. When her or his mind is cultivated thus, how can suffering come to her or him? And the second piece, for one who clings, motion exists, meaning the movement of the mind. For one who clings, motion exists, but for one who clings not, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where no coming and going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond, nor any place betwixt the two. This, in truth, is the end of suffering. And let's sit together quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.